0: Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Welcome to UCI Law Talks, a podcast that is operated out of UC Irvine School of Law and that focuses on issues of law and the legal profession. I'm Stephen Lee, a professor at UC Law School, and your host for this week's podcast. I'm delighted to be joined this week by my friend, my colleague, and perhaps most importantly, an internationally recognized expert on all things immigration-related, Professor Jennifer Chacon. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation with you.
0: I am too. I am too. A uh, continuation of the kinds of things we're talking about in our offices and hallways anyway. We figured we might as well just record it for the entertainment of uh, the general public. So let's start, Jennifer, with uh, some basic uh, information about who you are and what kinds of uh, questions and issues drive your research agenda.
1: So I um, am somebody who grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm from El Paso, and so I think immigration is something that infused my life as a child. Um, but I think I came to my appreciation for its importance in the law while I was a law student. And I was a second-year law student working in the immigration clinic doing asylum cases as the 1996 changes to law came down, and I started to realize sort of the tremendous um power of the state over uh, non-citizens, the sort of um, ways in which immigration law could move and change very quickly, um, and also the growing intersection um, between criminal law and immigration law, which became uh, an area of focus for much of my scholarship.
0: Yeah, that, that's a similar trajectory that my uh, career has followed as well. I, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, just uh, you know, a few miles north of El Paso, and so the border was always sort of casting a shadow on my life as well, of course uh you know my parents are uh, immigrants and they're immigrants from asia and uh you know my mother uh was uh, pregnant with me when she came over and uh, while i was born here i always got the sense that uh you know those few months that uh you know enabled me to be born here i think made a critical difference in terms of the legal status and legal journey that eventually i might have have had to follow had i been born elsewhere and also in law school, I should say that for me, uh, and my immigrant immigration students know all about this case. But uh, I remember in two thousand and three, DeMore versus Kim was decided, uh, and for the uninitiated, that was a case that uh, upheld the constitutionality of mandatory detention for certain so-called criminal criminal aliens. And uh, you know, in that case, I began to understand the profound impact on these kind of legal categories and deprivation of constitutional rights. And so, uh, you know, fast forward thirteen years later, and here we are. Uh, so, let's talk a little bit about the changes in immigration enforcement policy under a Trump administration. So, first, how are you feeling about the election now that the dust is settled? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's a that's a tough question. I think one thing that I has become really important to me to say, um, after having sort of watched the reaction of many. Uh, immigrants in the community over the last few weeks is that one thing that I think it's very important to stress is that so much of the law uh, moves slowly, um, that there are huge pieces of immigration law that will not change in the absence of congressional action. And so that means uh, things like the categories of immigrants who can come to the country as, uh, as being sponsored by family members right. or being sponsored by employers for people that have applications in the pipeline for uh, certain forms of immigration benefits. Many of these things are not going to go away or disappear overnight um, and and congressional actions required to change them. And so I think one message that it's important to sort of convey is that uh, there is uh, some stability in the law because we have uh, statutes on the books that would require acts of Congress to change. On the other hand, we also have a lot of uh, executive discretion built into the immigration code. And so we've seen this uh, over the past few years when we've watched uh, President Obama and prior presidents declare uh, priorities um, with regard to who uh, should be the focus uh, for immigration enforcement efforts. We have a budget that allows for the removal of several hundred thousand people a year, but there are many more people than that who are either present without authorization uh, or who have uh, violations of their uh, visa status that would make them deportable, and so uh, there are fewer resources than there are people who could potentially be targeted by the very broad immigration laws that we have, and so executive discretion becomes very important uh, as a, a as a funnel through which um, people are selected for enforcement targeting. And under the Obama administration, that's meant uh, programs like the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival program, where the Obama administration said these individuals are not priorities for deportation. uh, So they shouldn't be sitting around nervous about the fact that they might be deported. Um, And instead, they should be given work authorization um, and driver's licenses so they can live their lives because they're just not going to be on the deportation radar screen anytime soon. We just can't do it. Um, And similarly, um, both Obama and many administrations before him have articulated in memoranda who their priorities for removal are, recent arrivals or individuals with certain kinds of criminal convictions, so that those resources are targeted toward particular populations, at least ideally, although you and I both know that that's a much <laughs> more complex situation uh, than that. But. What happens with the Trump administration is we don't know what those enforcement priorities are going to look like. We do know that the law uh, that makes people deportable is quite broad, and that the grounds uh, for relief um, and discretionary relief once somebody's been identified as deportable are pretty narrow. Um, And so once the executive agencies make a decision that they want to deport somebody, it's pretty easy uh, to deport people. So a lot depends on how an administration decides to prioritize who they want to target for removal, whether they want to have targets for removals or whether they want to pursue arbitrary policies of whoever they can get. Right. And a lot of the Trump rhetoric uh, pre-election, I think, has been very unnerving and disconcerting uh, to individuals who work on immigration law and to immigrant communities because he has suggested that he— Doesn't really distinguish or differentiate among immigrants, and that his focus is really to remove everybody who's present without authorization and also target. Except the terrific be, ones. Except, except the terrific ones. ones. <laughs> and so we don't have a very <laughs> clear sense of what that means. And so I think I, I might throw that back to you. We've had his sort of uh, ever-changing conversation about who's terrific enough to avoid um, enforcement. And and I wondered if you had thoughts on sort of how that, how his rhetoric has evolved. Sure, on that it, sure.
0: You know. So, you know, this... Uh, The information we have on the coming changes to immigration policy changes with every tweet, so it's hard to keep up. But we do know from uh, President-elect Trump's recent interview with Time magazine that he's indicated uh, a lot of sympathy for the so-called Dreamers and DACA recipients. Uh, I think he uh, has said that uh, right here. I have it here. He said, quote, we're going to work something out that's going to make people happy and proud. Uh, They, that is the DACA recipients, got brought here at a very young age. They've worked here. They've gone to school here. Some were good students. Some have wonderful jobs, and they're in never never land because they don't know what's going to happen. Uh, so I, I think we have some sense, uh, a, a more uh, you know, a sharper picture of who the terrific people are. Uh, and I should say that this is something that has long been a part of the national narrative of the good immigrant and bad immigrant. I mean, going all the way back to Plyler versus Doe and Brennan working so hard to craft an opinion that allowed Justice Powell to sign on. Uh, you know, really uh, rested on the idea of K-12 children who had no control over their unlawful status. And of course, it was one of the few cases in the U.S. reports that uh, vindicates the rights of undocumented immigrants. But in doing so, it really cast a dichotomy or a binary between the good immigrant and the bad immigrant. But, you know, of course, the bad immigrant being uh, the parents who were thrown under the bus. So I, I do get a sense that there is some political stability to that label. I don't know how much further it's going to stretch. And I think that's one of the great concerns that many of us have. But at least for now, I think that there is some some movement in that direction. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the appointees we have uh, before us. So uh, President-elect Trump has indicated an intent to nominate Senator Jeff Sessions to be our next attorney general. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what a Sessions Justice Department might portend for immigrants and immigration enforcement policy.
1: So that's one area of, I think, concern. Um, I, I think Sessions has been a sort of a longtime opponent to any path to legalization for individuals with unauthorized status. He's opposed uh, various iterations of the DREAM Act um, in their early forms. He's opposed comprehensive immigration reform that was supported by more moderate Republicans in 2013. Um, so he doesn't seem to have an appetite for protecting uh, anyone who falls into the broad category of, uh, of, of deportable non-citizen um, and so I think one uh, one thing that we've seen under holder um, and Lynch uh, kind of under the umbrella of the Obama administration's um, kind of discretionary umbrella is that they've they've tried to I think make um, uh, uh, a, a number of, of choices about how um, how they go about uh, prosecuting um Immigration cases, and I think one of the worries with a Sessions uh, Department of Justice is that uh, he will sort of not uh, err on the side of discretion, and will be committed to seeing the uh, full effect of immigration law brought to bear on um, on immigrants who happen to get caught up in the uh, in the net of. Uh, of, it, of, of enforcement. And so we should note that by and large, it's going to be the Department of Homeland Security that will be on the front line here, not the Department of Justice. De- Department of Homeland Security will be kind of the people who are on the front lines in terms of deciding who's being brought into the system. Um, but when it comes to uh, litigating some of these cases uh, to their finale, um, I think Sessions' commitment to uh, the most... Um, The the strictest possible enforcement of immigration law uh, could have a real impact on how these cases are processed. So
0: that's that's a great point that you made. That it's going to be the Department of Homeland Security, not the Justice Department, who's going to be uh, responsible for initiating and pursuing removal proceedings and enforcement plans. Uh, It's one of the few things that I think the Homeland Security Act got right to kind of separate, disaggregate immigration functions between those two departments. And at first, I admit, I was thrilled to hear that. Well, thrilled is an overstatement. I was. Feeling some level of relief when I heard that Sessions was going to be the nominee for the Justice Department rather than Homeland Security. And then I began to think about all the work that the Justice Department does through its immigration judges, and in particular, the Board of Immigration Appeals. So uh, one of the things that uh, often goes unappreciated is the nearly unfettered control the attorney general enjoys over the appointment and removal of members to the 17-person Board of Immigration Appeals, the BIA. Uh, And of course, any practitioner knows that the BIA plays an important function, not just in reviewing IJ decisions, serving as a kind of agency appellate body, uh, but also in setting precedent at the agency level and moving law in one direction or the other. And so on a kind of slower, more deliberate level, I think that uh, there's going to be an anti-immigrant agenda being carried out through uh, that body as well. I mean, we we saw a flavor of that under the Bush administration, where he began removing BIA members uh, who, uh, well not he, but through his attorney general, began to members who uh, expressed a little too much sympathy towards immigrants. And I fear that the similar kind of dynamic is gonna play out in the Sessions Justice Department. Uh,
1: There's there's one other place where we might think about the impact he might have, and that's in the prosecution of immigration crimes. That's That's, great. That's true. um, And so we've seen under both Bush and Obama uh, a significant commitment to using federal uh, Department of Justice resources to prosecute uh, criminal uh, violations of immigration law. Um, And primarily uh, under the Bush administration – misdemeanor and illegal entry and primarily under the Obama administration uh, felony um, re-entry And we see that those cases now actually if you if numerically make up the bulk of federal criminal prosecutions right. so they outstrip uh, federal prosecutions of drug crimes, federal prosecutions of white-collar crimes, a federal prosecution of gun crimes. it has sort of become the place where the vast uh, kind of, or the vast power of the federal government in the kind of criminal prosecution sphere has, has focused and that's an area where um, under Sessions that kind of commitment uh, to prosecuting individuals for criminal violations that uh, relate to the immigration law um, will presumably be strengthened and certainly will be pursued and presumably uh, be strengthened as well in the coming years.
0: Yeah, and I think that that uh, impulse to disaggregate the numbers of people who belong in the category of so-called criminal aliens, it's important because the only kind of crimes that matter if we peg uh, criminal conduct as a marker for you know, some kind of violent behavior. The only ones that matters are the ones that are outside of the immigration control context, because it's really disingenuous to call people who you know, re-enter after deportation you know, a criminal in the same category as someone who commits a sort of violent crime. And I think that's a place where academics have been you know, helpful in trying to educate the public on what that really means. So let's shift gears a little bit to talk about the Department of Homeland Security. We know that uh, John Kelly is a presumptive nominee for Homeland Security. Uh, And uh, at this point, I guess he's a relatively new face to uh, the world of uh, immigration law, immigrant rights advocacy, but... Uh, do you have any initial reactions to that appointment?
1: So I don't have a, a, a lot of strong reactions. I guess one reaction I had was relief, um, and that's only because the names, some of the names that had been batted around as potential DHS um, secretaries, had been um, much would have much more clearly signaled a particular approach to immigration enforcement. For example, um, some people had batted around Chris Kobach's name, um, and he was the author of Arizona's SB 1070 um, and a, a sort of a vocal um, proponent of uh, uh, of uh, kind of hardline immigration enforcement efforts and a ramping up of uh, immigration enforcement. And so that would have been a clear uh, signal that this was an area that would be of deep, deep concern. Um, similarly, some people, I don't know how facetiously, talked about people like uh, Maricopa, Maricopa County's former sheriff, Joe Arpaio. <laughs> um, so a lot of names that that I think would have uh, sort of immediately been associated um, with a very, very hardline approach in this area, uh, were kind of did not come in to be with a, with the selection of Kelly. Um, but I think that doesn't necessarily answer all concerns. And I know you had some preliminary thoughts about this, uh, too. So I wondered if you wanted to reflect on that. Well,
0: I'll, I'll, I'll just say that I don't know much about uh, John Kelly either, other than he was a decorated, highly decorated uh, commander uh, in the Marines. Uh, I will say that that data point alone suggests a market shift from the last four confirmed DHS secretaries. So if you look at Secretaries Tom Ridge, Michael Chertoff, Janet Napolitano, and Jay Johnson, they were all lawyers by training, and they had all some mix of experience uh, between public service and time spent uh, in the private bar. And then by contrast, uh, nominee Kelly has no JD and uh, again has primary military experience. And I should point out to be fair that such a profile isn't entirely unprecedented. Uh, The two acting secretaries of Homeland Security uh, had similar profiles. But at least with regards to the confirmed secretaries, they all have represented an extension of the legal profession. Uh, I, I do wonder what it signals. Uh, perhaps it's a, a signal to the public that uh, under a Trump administration, uh, you know, sort of Homeland Security activities will have a closer tie to sort of efforts that are carried out overseas uh, in uh, you know, areas of conflict. But again, it's really too hard to tell right now. It's still very preliminary. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what has perhaps been the most uh, important uh, immigration uh, benefits program of the last several decades, and that is Deferred Action for Childhood uh, Childhood Arrivals. What's going to happen to this program?
1: So I think we talked a little bit about this before. There is uh, uh, a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen to this program. This is a program that was created uh, via a memo issued by the Department of Homeland Security, Secretary Johnson. Um, so it is an administrative creation, um, and an administration can eliminate its, its own creation in this regard. It's not an act of Congress. It's not a law that would require repeal. It's not even a regulation that would require a process of repeal. And so it's, it's uh, very, very fragile in that sense. Um, And a new administration could come in and revoke DACA on day one, say, I am discontinuing the program. Um, And then there are legal questions about whether he could also immediately revoke employment authorization um, and other benefits that have flowed from deferred action status. There are legal questions around that, but he certainly would have a great deal of discretion to revoke the program. And even if he couldn't immediately claw back employment authorization, it's something that would lapse um, once individual's two-year term of deferred action was up if he didn't renew the program. So for most people, within the next few months, uh, that would mean that the program would expire for them and that there would be no program for them to apply to Um, I think he had on the campaign trail promised uh, that he would uh, revoke or repeal uh, this program on day one in office. And so that was one of the sort of immediate concerns upon his election was that these over 700,000 students who have received, students and people working um, who have received deferred action status would lose their status immediately on day one. And I think in the days and weeks that have uh, led up to and followed the election, he's backed away um, from those statements that he that it's his kind of priority number one to repeal the program on day one um, and so what we have instead are statements about his desire to keep uh, terrific people in the United States his sympathetic statements about um, uh, about uh, people who are students and who have worked hard um, and who in his uh, view or construction are relatively innocent uh, with regard to their unauthorized presence and so uh, I think it, what the signals is that he has moved off of much the way he's moved off of the notion that we need a 3,000 mile wall um, that he's going to build immediately. He's moved off of this hardline rhetoric um, that he's going to get rid of this program on day one. And that just leaves us in a, a position where we're sort of trying to feel out what that will mean. Will it mean uh, that he just lets the program uh, li- limp along and then expire? Um, it sounds like now he's tending toward uh, trying to do something that would extend the possibility of status. And there is some discussion uh, that uh, some uh, Republicans like Lindsey Graham and the Senate are looking at the possibility of legislative solutions to this issue. So enacting a law that would provide some form of legal status uh, to individuals who are currently DACA designees. And at this point in time, I don't think any of us are sure which way this is going, except to say that w- the direction it's moving is certainly more encouraging than the direction it looked like it was moving the day before the election.
0: You know, one one friendly amendment uh, to your comment there, and that is I think you uh, it indicated that DACA was written in the Johnson memo, but it was actually written in the Napolitano memo in right, 2012. Right, sorry. Uh, yes, that's right, in 2012. But, but the only reason why that matters for our purposes is that in the 2014 memo that outlined the terms of expanded DACA and DAPA uh, that was eventually you know, uh, upheld, the rejected by the Fifth Circuit and upheld by the Supreme Court by a divided vote, uh, there was a question as to whether or not the next administration might pursue that same right. sort of program through notice-and-comment rulemaking, And now with the Trump administration, that's almost certainly the case that it won't proceed in that way. But of course, what you mentioned about uh, Senator Graham's bill that would provide a legislative fix is very encouraging for for DACA recipients.
1: Yes. And I should, so thank you for that. It was under Napolitano. It was June of 2012 um, when the memo was issued. And just uh, to continue on that theme, there is a silver lining uh, about about the DAPA program. I've had many people ask me, what's going to happen to all those people who applied for DAPA um, and have their information sitting in the database, to which I say, well, (laughs) fortunately for them, the program never went into effect, so you don't have people who have applied for the Deferred Action for Parents of uh, Lawful Permanent Residents and Citizens. Although some um, organizations worked with people to preliminarily get their paperwork together for that program, the program was never implemented. And so those individuals never filed for relief um, pursuant to the Johnson memo. Uh, So that that may be the upside of that. The downside of that is it also means there are a large number of people who might have had some form of deferred action uh, granted under uh, Obama, and and they too might have been covered or part of a discussion about legislation, and that seems less likely now um, because they're in a universe where they don't have uh, a benefit extended to them, um, and uh, and the Trump administration may or may not be uh, amenable to sort of expanding the sphere of individuals protected um, by DACA.
0: You know, beyond DACA, another subject of immigration enforcement or subtopic of immigration enforcement that's really troubled me is the return of worksite rates. That has really troubled me. Uh, One of the, uh, I think, uh, iconic images during uh, the Bush administration uh, was the Postville-Iowa raid and the kind of large-scale raids that uh, led to uh, deprivations of due process and roundups and mass deportations. And, uh, you know... President Obama really tried to shift enforcement policy in that direction to target employers in a much more regulatory fashion as opposed to a traditional law and order uh, approach. And I fear that that's going to return now under a Trump administration. Uh, you're already seeing a flavor of this uh, you know, in the waning days of the Obama administration. I don't know if you're following the worksite raids in Buffalo, New York. I mean, in a lot of ways, that is... Defiant of uh, the enforcement priorities set by the Obama administration. and I fear that you know a lot of these offices are going to feel emboldened now that we have a new set of political appointees coming in and and that's something that I, I really am worried about, especially with regards to all these kinds of uh, administrative agreements between labor agencies and uh, DHS. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that uh, you know, Department of Labor and uh, you know these other sort of state level agencies have been able to, make some progress the last few years, has been the assurances sent out to immigrant communities that whatever information that they uh, submit to labor agencies will be subject to a firewall so that it won't ever be shared beyond them. And without that firewall, I fear that we're going to have tips just drying up. Uh, Immigrants will no longer feel comfortable sharing that information. And these laws will effectively go unenforced, which I should say, not only affects immigrant communities, but also should be of concern for all the citizen authorized workers out there as well, because that inevitably reduces their protections.
1: I think that's right. I think it also increases concerns about uh, racial profiling generally, and that's obviously not just for non-citizens, but for citizens who share racial and ethnic backgrounds um, with the members of immigrant communities. Uh, So I think I agree uh, that we're likely to see both because uh, different uh, agents on the ground who have been feeling more constrained by the Obama administration's priorities are now going to feel less constrained. Uh, We're going to be seeing more uh, workplace actions, uh, perhaps more home raids as well, or more sweeping um, home raid actions. And I think the other um, point to add here is that these kinds of high profile, highly visible enforcement efforts are in keeping um, with uh, Trump's rhetoric around immigration enforcement, which is a rhetoric of of displays of enforcement, displays through the building of the wall, displays through sort of uh, the notions evoked in a Republican debate, and a debate with, with others in the Republican primaries, where he invoked the image of Operation Wetback, the 1954 Eisenhower enforcement effort. These are very visible, uh, high-profile enforcement efforts that send a message. And that seemed to be his uh, his uh, hope, right, to, to, to pursue a policy uh, of these sort of high-profile enforcement efforts. And workplace raids fit that Model as do uh, as do high profile uh, home raids that target uh, everyone in the household, um, and so I think that is a that is a concern um, that both uh, agencies will feel less tethered by priorities, and that they may feel uh, that it will be acceptable and desirable in the new administration for them to undertake more high profile visible um, efforts of enforcement, uh, regardless of whether that actually serves. Um, the good of the nation, or serves the good of communities, um, or uh, or serves uh, workers. Um, I think those those questions may be lower priority than does this look like we're making a show of force in an area where we've said we will make a show of force.
0: So let's move away from uh, the shift in enforcement priorities and programs and talk about places where uh, immigrants and their allies might exercise some agency and resistance. So. A concept that has attracted a lot of attention the last several weeks, I mean, really the last several years, but especially the last several weeks, has been sanctuaries. So can you say a little bit about sanctuaries? What are sanctuaries? Sanctuaries.
1: I think nobody knows uh, what a sanctuary <laughs> is. Um, I think the, when people talk about when people are evoking notions of sanctuary um, in the context of a university um, uh, or a locality, what they uh, have tended to mean, um, I think, is they have they have meant that this particular jurisdiction or entity um, will protect individuals who uh, may be vulnerable to deportation. And there are various ways they think about protection. And one way they think about protection is that uh, they won't engage in a voluntary information sharing. So if they have information in their files that an individual lacks legal status, uh, that they won't voluntarily turn that information over to federal immigration enforcement agents um, if that uh, disclosure is not required by law. Um, they won't uh, th- That they will protect the, the privacy uh, concerns of individuals and their immigration status and that they will be protective of records that indicate uh, that an individual might be out of status. Another way that protection might manifest itself is by uh, setting a higher standard about how and when immigration enforcement officials will be allowed to be within a particular jurisdiction or on a particular campus. So requiring uh, that ICE have a warrant um, in order to make entry uh, into a a particular space on a private university maybe to enter the campus and a public university perhaps to enter uh, dormitory spaces right so requiring that ICE uh, if they're allowed in at all are only allowed in uh, if they can make the necessary legal showings and not allowing them in sort of permissively to engage in policing activities. And this would be pretty consonant with what they do anyway or have always been doing. Um, So so those are some meanings of sanctuary. When we think about sanctuary uh, the way it was talked about in the 1980s, um, we can think about it very differently and in a much more robust way. And I think when some activists and organizers are talking about sanctuary, this is the image of sanctuary they have. So in the 1980s, there were individuals who came Uh, largely from Central America seeking uh, asylum status um, as a consequence of the targeting that they experienced um, in periods of instability in their country and and, uh, kind of regimes of violence um, uh, that they were fleeing, and their claims were being denied. Uh, So they were being denied asylum status sort of wholesale and, as we know through later litigation, wrongfully in many cases. Um, But there were some churches and other entities that took the stand that they were going to protect these individuals from being returned to danger. And they gave them sanctuary in a very full and robust sense of the word, meaning that they said, we will protect these people in these places. We will uh, make sure that they are not turned over. And that is true whether or not somebody has a warrant for their arrest. And that is true uh, whether or not there is a legal authorization for giving this protection. And in some cases, those individuals were criminally prosecuted under harboring laws for harboring unauthorized migrants. So that is the sort of robust meaning, kind of the most robust meaning of sanctuary, which is an act of civil disobedience in some sense, uh, where individuals uh, and entities are acting in protective ways that are in defiance of written law um, and that run the risk, as civil disobedience often does, of prosecution. And so one of the sort of issues that uh, that I think is emerging around this discussion about sanctuary and what it means right now is that I think when universities are signing uh, uh, pledges or being asked to sign pledges about sanctuary, they're thinking about sanctuary in the sense of the kind of former, more limited vision of sanctuary that I've articulated, one that uh, prohibits information sharing absence of legal order, one that prohibits ICE presence on campus absence some sort of legal authorization for their presence. It does not envision the sort of more robust uh, civil disobedience vision of sanctuary uh, that I think the movement uh, of the 1980s uh, envisioned. And I think some of the activists and organizers are really asking for this more robust vision. And so I guess one concern I have, or maybe just more of a a general sense I have, is that when we talk about sanctuary and what it means in a particular context, we do need to be clear about what uh, limits organizations are signaling when they think about their own capacity to provide sanctuary. That said, I think there's also an important signaling function that served uh, when organizations say that they plan to be protective of individuals' privacy and be protective of their spaces in terms of enforcement efforts. It just sends a signal that they uh, that they plan to uh, stand with people. Um, but there are these questions about what that means and how far it goes. Well,
0: I, I do think that there is—so I, I, I love that. And I think part of the reason I love that is it taps into the deeply— um, uh, emotional response that the idea of sanctuary elicits in many people. I think that you know many of us in our generation uh, are particularly religious and yet there's something that feels so right about linking your uh, critique of existing immigration laws to this larger movement uh, in a civil disobedience tradition. In other words, to claim a place as a sanctuary is simultaneously to protect individuals, but then also to levy a very deep and heartfelt moral critique of existing laws. And I think that a lot of people who aren't uh, activists by nature find themselves very excited about that label. Now, of course, as lawyers, we always have to be careful what we promise individuals. And I think you're absolutely right to suggest people not uh, you know, feel... Uh, you know, as if they're insulated against any kinds of enforcement uh, activity by the federal government. Nevertheless, I think in terms of organizing and generating a social movement, that's a, a potentially fruitful uh, avenue to pursue. I agree. Now, let, let, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, part of the reason why I think sanctuaries and universities and localities have taken this stand, and that is uh, the very complicated nature of the family unit. Uh, you know, People often sort of cast people with the unauthorized immigrant brush uh, wholesale, as if entire communities categorically belong to one category of being unauthorized. But of course, that's not the reality. And I know you have some thoughts on the mixed status family and how that plays into all this. So what, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I think one of the things that I'm observing is that uh, when, when there are concerns about deportation, it's concerns that are often uh, taking place in the context of a family where some members of the family are citizens, uh, some members of the families may have lawful uh, uh, resident status, and some members of the family are undocumented. And what that means is that um, it's when we talk about enforcement efforts, we're not just talking about unauthorized uh, non-citizens who are going to be affected. We're talking about families who will be affected by these efforts, and that includes a fair number of citizens and lawful permanent residents. And this also means that regardless of what we think about what the future holds, if we think that the future holds increased enforcement, and I think we probably do, then it's really important to think about what that means for families, where a family member, particularly when that family member is a breadwinner or a primary caretaker, is vulnerable to deportation. And I think it's really important for families to start thinking through um, having plans Um, in place uh, to deal with the possibility uh, that a breadwinner uh, or a head of household might be, maybe not deported, but might be detained for a substantial period of time and in proceedings for a substantial period of time. Um, We can envision that happening on a much wider scale. So what does that mean? It means you need to have um, a plan in place for who's going to take care of your kids um, while you're in detention. It means you should make sure that your assets are not just registered in your name so that if somebody needs to liquidate an asset. like sell a house or a car for funding, uh, that they can can do that. It means making sure your bank accounts are jointly held, um, so that if your kids need money for food while you're in detention, uh, there's a way for them to access those assets. It does mean having a bank account, I think, um, because that means that you can uh, have somebody that you trust who has access to your assets rather than uh, somebody who can get into your house and deal with your uh, money. So I think there are lots of planning things that go into... um, Concerns uh, that people might, or planning things that people can do uh, to protect themselves or to make themselves uh, more ready in the event uh, that uh, in, they're worried that individuals in their family might be targeted for removal. So this is the non-panic approach. I think a lot of people are very worried, right? Yeah. They're worried that something is going to happen to them, and they're thinking, should I sell my house? Should I leave? Should I? You know, there are a lot of things that you could do. Well, it fits with
0: this narrative of the nat- <laughs> of a natural disaster that I think uh, I've I've heard come up. I mean, in other words. In California, we always know that an earthquake is a theoretical possibility, but even when it happens, we find ourselves scrambling. And I think for a lot of people on the left, that's what they felt when Trump was elected. They felt, well, in theory, he could be elected. We saw, But we saw the numbers, and we just trusted it was never going to happen. And so there's a sense that we're all sort of scrambling Uh, in conjunction with uh, these uh, organizations and people on the ground to try and piece together a a safety plan for what's next. I also think that there's an important message hidden in this mixed status uh, reality, which is that usually the case, not always, but usually it's a case that if there is a mixed status and there are citizens, it's usually the children who are citizens by virtue of birthright citizenship. And I do think that it foists certain special and uh, Demanding responsibilities on those children to take the lead in terms of uh, caring for their family members their parents and their uh, you know grandparents and uncles and that in a lot of ways can be a very uncomfortable Dynamic for children who are like most children would uh, you know, tend to either defer or take cues from their parents But really in this situation you're reversing that's dynamic. You're the one who's going out finding uh, Legal assistance. You're the one who's having to try and find information about whether or not you should sell the house and I think that many college students and law students I speak to feel great unease about this. but I, I always encourage them that this is the opportunity for you to to take the lead in your community because if not you, then then no one else can really can do this.
1: I think the other the other thing I just want to add to that, I completely agree. I think one thing that we just need to acknowledge um, is that this means that there are small children who are, experiencing very, very high levels of stress right. around this issue right, right now. And so educators uh, need to be aware of the fact that kids in their schools are, are struggling with this. And I think many are and are doing just yeoman's work in terms of um, providing support networks. Um, but children are very aware uh, of, of the discussions that are happening around uh, the possibilities for increased enforcement in the Trump administration. They were very aware throughout the election and they are experiencing stress in the wake of the election. They they feel uh, like it may have very specific implications for them. And so I think it's really important that we not uh, leave them out of the conversation yeah. and that parents who can uh, take the time to to talk to their kids about what this means and to also talk to them about uh, the need to sort of plan realistically um, and not worry excessively. I mean,
0: that stress is gonna, uh, there's a good chance that stress will materialize into trauma later. I mean, I, I was just having a conversation with a, a friend of mine a couple weeks ago. It was a very successful uh, law professor, uh, top of her game, top of her field. And she disclosed to me, I had no idea, but she disclosed to me that she herself was undocumented at one point in her life. And then she broke into tears sharing this information and saying that she never talks about it with anyone. And uh, there's a way in which this experience scars you. And if there's no outlet for you, it really can become an overwhelming burden for these people as they become adults, even despite beating the odds. So I think that's a great point. So uh, we're getting towards the end of time here, Jennifer. And I thought that maybe we should uh, speak directly to uh, our listeners who themselves are immigrants or, or uh, those who serve immigrants and talk a little bit about the kind of resources that are available to them. So uh, whom should they trust?
1: So I want to start with uh, the notion that there are lots of people that they maybe shouldn't trust. Okay. <laughs> and we'll start maybe, there. Maybe and maybe I'll start with place a negative, right? <laughs> uh, I think one of the, this is one of, the, one of the problems with having a highly stressful and uncertain situation. You and I are people who study immigration, and we cannot say with any certainty what will happen to DACA. We cannot say with any certainty uh, what Trump's enforcement priorities will be. We can't say with any certainty how many people will be removed next year. We can't say with any certainty whether Congress will take any legislative action that will increase the range of options for people who maybe are presently here without authorization, there is a great deal of uncertainty about what the law will look like in the next year, two years, four years. One of the problems with that uncertainty is, and the anxiety that uncertainty creates is that there are people that are happy to capitalize off yeah, of, that's that, right. uh, uh, of, of that un- insecurity. And, and right. the, the simple truth is that for many people who are here without authorization, there is no path to legalization that the law currently creates. There are some narrow roads. Um, there are narrow roads for the individuals who have been the victims of crime and have cooperated with law enforcement for the U visa. There are narrow roads for individuals who have been abused by citizens or lawful permanent residents. Around uh, There are narrow roads uh, for individuals in, in extreme cases uh, to possibly have cancellation of removal when they have a citizen child who will experience extreme hardship if they're removed. And there are narrow roads around certain kinds of asylum or withholding benefits but for many many people none of those are fits um, and for many many people even if they can find a fit um, because they now they, they marry someone who's a citizen uh, there are there are issues in the law where they might have to right. uh, try to regularize in ways that will require them to leave the country right. and face the possibility of a 10-year bar before a return so I think That means that there are a lot of people that unless Congress actually gets it together to fix the way that the law works right now, um, there aren't very good options for them. That said, a lot of people want to try to do something um, before Obama leaves office because they fear this may be their last chance, and so there is a scramble for people to apply for benefits that they may not be eligible for, or to try to get uh, to try to you know try to get an employment authorization that they may have no path to, right. um, or to try to take an action like engage in a marriage that may actually not really create good opportunities for them, and there are people who are willing to profit from that Um, and so I think one piece of advice that we need to be giving is that it is not Sufficient to call yourself a notario, right? That's somebody who can notarize a document. Um, That does not make you a lawyer And it doesn't equip you to give immigration advice to people And so people should be careful about who they're asking for immigration advice If they think they're consulting a lawyer They should be comfortable asking that person if they will demonstrate that they are a lawyer by showing that they are bar certified Um, They should make sure they're getting advice from somebody who can actually give legal advice and They should be very, very cautious about filing paperwork with the Department of Homeland Security to pursue options that they're encouraged to pursue because they have to recognize that no benefit is going to be processed before the Obama administration leaves, with the exception of some emergency applications of a very narrow category, which means that whatever paperwork anybody files right now, it's going to be decided under the auspices of the Trump administration. So you want it to be uh, paperwork that's being filed for, for relief that you qualify for and that is genuinely going to offer you some form of protection and that you are that you're a solid candidate for because otherwise what you've done is put your paperwork and information where you live and a lot of your personal data in front of Department of Homeland Security officers who are now uh, charged with a more aggressive enforcement policy and I worry that people are going to pay money to individuals who don't have uh, the proper training and then they're going to pursue legal remedies that they're not actually entitled for and that the upshot of all this will be that they've paid money to effectively speed their own to potential, out themselves as potential um, removal so I just think again in, the, in keeping with the don't panic message it's really important for people to be aware that they shouldn't be rushing uh, to file legal paperwork and that if anybody's trying to convince them Uh, that they really ought to rush, then they really need to make sure that the person that they're talking to uh, is somebody who's certified to practice law and has a good reputation in the field because there will be many people who will be encouraging people to take steps that are really dangerous right
0: now. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, sometimes the thing that you want to hear is not the thing that you need to hear. Uh, And that's true of whether or not the situation involves immigration uh, benefits or something beyond that. I think just as uh, anyone in a bad place, it's important to get sound and accurate advice. So where are there uh, places for immigrants to get good advice?
1: So one, uh, I want to give a shout out first to uh, the UC system. um, And I want to just for uh, listeners who might be affiliated with the University of California, for people who are students, um, there is the University of California Undocumented Legal Services Center, which is based out of Davis, um, but which has lawyers on staff who are charged with assisting Mm -hmm. uh, students in the UC system um, with immigration issues. And uh, to the extent their capacity allows, they are also um, charged with assisting the families of those students. So if you have a sister or a mother um, who's not a UC student, um, but uh, you yourself are a UC student, um, then you can seek the services of the UC Documented legal services center. So that's one resource um, that I think some people uh, are not aware of and should be made aware of. There are the sort of well-established legal service organizations that have done a lot of work around immigration. Um, so NILC is a good example. Right. MALDEF is another good example. These These are organizations, the ILRC, the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, these are organizations that have a long history of doing excellent work uh, in the immigration services world, and you can go to their websites. They have a lot of information about what they're recommending in terms of whether to apply for DACA or not apply, um, and in terms of what they think uh, one can expect uh, to happen in the coming months. So those are great resources for people um, online and often um, in more than one language. um, The language
0: language point's an important one because one of the... Your benefits of going to an organization like for example, Asian Americans Advancing Justice is, is that they've made a lot of their know your rights. Uh, I mean, they've made their know your rights uh, materials available in a large number of Asian languages. So again, for listeners out there who are the children of immigrants or who have family members who are unauthorized immigrants, you know please visit websites like that to get those resources to then forward on to their parents and relatives to help them uh, make better decisions about this uncertain moment. Well, Jennifer, we're at the end of time. Uh, Thank you for uh, spending a little time here to chat about this moment of uncertainty. And I hope that we can revisit some of these issues once we get a better sense of how the Trump administration is going to carry out its immigration enforcement plans.
1: Well, thanks for doing this with me. This was fun.
0: It was great. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.